And some of us have never seen people come to Christ because we're not using the word of Christ to evangelize. And yet that is the very tool, the eternal seed that the Spirit of God uses to bring about conversion. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in chapter 10 of the book of Romans and in this section which looks at Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ as that nation's Messiah, we find the Apostle Paul indicating how it is that individuals come to genuine faith in Christ. So far, we have seen that those who are true Christians believe the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they're not ashamed of verbalizing that faith. How is it, though, that people hear the good news of Christ? Well, it is through other Christians who are, in obedience, sharing their faith. In Isaiah 51 and 53, he's looking down the corridors of time, not just to the initial rejection when Jesus would come the first time, but Isaiah also looks down to their ultimate reception when Jesus comes again, that when he comes again, they will be there in faith. And of course, their salvation is possible because of Isaiah 53, because of his work as the suffering servant, dying for iniquity and coming out of the grave alive. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. It opens with these words, awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem is synonyms. They refer to the same city, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. And then he tells them to shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. To shake yourself from the dust was basically a command to stop mourning because in Scripture, putting dust on one's head was a sign of mourning and a sign of repentance. And because Jerusalem was going to be freed from her chains, never to be enslaved again, they had reason to rejoice. And if you know the chapter, he's looking all the way down time to a future time. It's called the Great Tribulation in the New Testament. It's called by the prophet Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble, that seven-year period in human history when there will be a one-world leader called Antichrist and a one-world government and a one-world religion. And it's during that time that God is going to bring the Jewish people to faith in Christ. And they are going to be freed in the oppression of the Gentiles that they've known since the time of Daniel called the time of the Gentiles will end and they will be free. He says, for thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Sadly and tragically, the Israelis gave themselves to other gods in Isaiah's day. And just like someone who is physically immoral, these people were spiritually immoral. They were committing spiritual adultery. They were selling themselves for nothing, for a false god. Yet God in His great mercy will redeem them without money. The redemption of a soul is costly. It costs God everything, the blood of Christ, but it is the free gift of salvation to everyone and anyone who believes. And he will describe that in the 53rd chapter, that this salvation cost us the Messiah who would be smitten of God and afflicted. In verses 4 and 5 here in Isaiah 52, he speaks of the nations that oppressed Israel, Assyria, 
Well, first the Egyptians for 400 years, then the Assyrians who carried away the 10 uh, northern tribes off into slavery. And then the Babylonians who were getting ready to come and to carry away the two southern tribes called as Judah. And so when he looks at these people who had habitually oppressed Israel, what did they do? They blasphemed, according to verses 5 and 6, the God of Israel. They mocked the God of Israel. They said, oh, you're God. Look how strong he is now. You're working for us. And they said, we reign, we are in control. And the truth is that Isaiah wants to underscore is that he reigns. There is coming a day when they will see the sovereignty of the God of Israel. And there are people today who mock us as Christians, who laugh at our morality, who, who put their nose up at the things that we teach, and they think we're in control, we reign. And they're going to see, no, the world will see that our God reigns. We sing that song and it comes right out of this chapter. They will see that Jesus is Lord when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And so the prophet in that context, sharing this great news that is going to come upon them, says this in verse 7. And I'm getting to this because this is the verse Paul is going to quote. Listen, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, to Jerusalem, your God reigns. Isaiah prophesies here of the lovely feet of him who announces salvation, who announces the good news. Now back here in our text, look carefully at verse 15. This is the verse that he is quoting. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The Holman Christian translation that the Southern Baptist came out with a decade ago renders it this way, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. And that's good too. The verb, ongalizo, is often uh, translated to preach good news or to preach glad tidings. And the verb, iongaluzo, when you take each um, Greek word, and you just put the equivalent sound into English, it comes out as euangelion, and into Latin, and then to English as evangelism. And so when we speak about evangelism, we're talking about someone who is preaching the good news. When we speak of evangelical Christians, we're talking about Christians who believe the good news based on the revelation of Scripture. And I've told you many times before that the word, though it has a religious connotation in our day, could be used very broadly in the first century of any kind of good news. Not only in Isaiah's day, but in Paul's day and even in our day. Uh, not typically in our day, but if you lived in the first century and you were a student and you passed a very difficult exam, your good news might be, I passed. That would be what you would announce. I passed. If you were a couple and you were hoping and longing and waiting that you might be able to conceive and then you finally do, your good news would be, we're going to have a baby. If you were a soldier, your good news to your compatriot who had not heard is, the war is over. And so it is used of any kind of good news. And sometimes even in the New Testament, it's not used of the gospel, it's just used of some good news. 
But when the article is present, or when the context defines the good news, when the article is present, the good news, he's speaking specifically of what Isaiah 53 will unfold of the death, burial, and resurrection. Because the good news, the gospel, Paul said, I delivered to you as a first importance, the gospel, that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who evangelize, in essence, their world. That's good news. And so he's taking this quote from Isaiah, which again is looking down the corridors of time when they are going to believe on Jesus as the Lord. They will look on him whom they have pierced in faith. And he applies it to the church. Why? Because we are sharing that good news today. And we believe in the same good news that they are going to believe in. And so when we share the good news, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God says we have beautiful feet. By the way, what are your feet like? If God were to describe them, not in terms of size, not in terms of odor, but are they beautiful feet? Are they beautiful and that feet move, feet carry a message? Are they beautiful and that you are carrying the good news that God has commissioned you to carry? Now, the problem with so many Christians today is they don't see it as their responsibility or they don't see it as their gift. And the truth of the matter is, is that every Christian is responsible whether God's gifted you in evangelism or not. And so in Romans 10 and in verse 16, notice what he says, however, They did not heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And so if evangelism is a series of successive steps that unfold so that someone can hear the gospel and call upon Jesus in faith, if that is true, then how on earth do we explain the unbelief of the Jewish people? It's very simple. It's called free will. They said no. He came to his own and his own received him not. They said, no. They said, no, we don't want Jesus. And so in verse 16, he tells us the Jews said no. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? Who's the they in the verse? Well, in the broader context, Israel. Uh, The NIV 84 renders it this way. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our message? Now, the word Israelites or Israel is not in the Greek New Testament. The pronoun they are. But he indeed, these translators on the NIV board, interpret it. Now, there's a place for that, but there's not always a place for it. Because sometimes when a translator or a translation board goes uh, beyond interpreting, beyond uh, translating to interpreting, then you're reading their commentary, what they think. And that's why I would always advocate a more literal translation of the Bible because you don't want in someone's translation their commentary what they think. And so Eugene Peterson, which we discussed in our course on bibliology, came up with a translation of the Bible called The Message That in Places is Absolutely Heretical. And he's a liberal. He was a liberal scholar, and why he ever found his way in the Nav Press is beyond me. But he denies some basic historical truths in his translation because it's not so much a translation, it's an interpretation. But I say all that to say that the they is indeed Israel. 
God knows all things. God knows the beginning and the end. He knew that initially they would reject Christ, but they knew at the second coming of Messiah, they would embrace Christ. And so he asked a rhetorical question, Lord, who has believed our report? And according to Isaiah, what kind of report was it that they did not believe? The report that's described in Isaiah 53, that Messiah would die and rise again from the dead. Lord, who has believed our report? What does that mean? Does that mean that the apostles who shared the good news did a poor job at sharing it? No, no, not at all. You've heard me say it before. I got it from Bill Bright, the founder and president of Campus Crusade, that successive witnessing is simply taking the initiative to share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Were the apostles successful in their witness? Absolutely. Because they shared Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and they left the results to God. And in this case, the results were they said no. They just said, no, and this week you may share Christ and someone may laugh at you, spurn at you or say, well, I don't want to make a decision and you may feel like a failure. It's not failure. Successful witnessing is being filled with the Spirit and going and sharing Christ and you leave the results to God because God is ultimately the author of conversion. And so the apostles had beautiful feet. The problem was not that these people had not heard. The problem was that these people did not heed. Look again at verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news. This word heed is actually two Greek words. The Greek word akuo, that means to listen, and the prefix hupa, that means under. In other words, they did not listen under. They did not hear submissively. They heard it with their ears, but they didn't get under the gospel. They didn't respond to the gospel. And so throughout the New Testament, you are going to see a person's decision to respond to the gospel as listening under the gospel. For instance, in John 3, 36, the apostle John said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son. It doesn't say he who does not believe the Son, but he who does not obey the Son. Why? Because it's not the kind of believing where you are under it. You are hearing under the gospel. You are submitting to its truth. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. When Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he said, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, What is he going to do? He'll be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel, to those who do not put themselves under the authority of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so it is possible, as you've heard me say before, to know the man of salvation, uh, to know the plan of salvation without knowing the man of salvation. And there are people in churches just like this all across America. When you ask them the diagnostic questions, they can answer them perfectly. And they think because they know the plan of salvation that they're on their way to heaven. Not necessarily so. You can intellectualize the gospel without having responded in the heart with the heart man believes unto righteousness. These Jewish people, much like Gentiles in our day, did not heed the good news. In John 3.18, Jesus said, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe is judged or condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then just a few chapters later, in describing his people, the Jewish people, it says, but though he had performed so many signs or miracles before them, yet they were not believing him. 
And then he quotes the same text of Scripture that we've been looking at from Isaiah that Paul is quoting in our passage today. This was to fulfill what the the word of Isaiah the prophet said. Lord, who has believed our report? They didn't respond. They didn't listen under. They did not heed the gospel. And I want to tell you, as you know that passage in John 12, it says because they would not believe, they came to the point where they could not believe. And that happens every day to someone somewhere in the world, I can promise you. Because they will not believe, there comes a point where they cannot believe. That's what John 12 explicitly states. When a man today hears the gospel and God calls you to make a decision because today is the day of salvation, and you say no to God Almighty who says, I want you to be saved today, and you say no, you put another callus on the human heart. And there comes a point known only to God where the final callus is put on the human heart, where because they would not believe, they could not believe, they've worn the patience of God thin. So hearing is not believing, and that's seen first in the fact that Israel did not heed the good news. But notice also, Israel could have believed the good news. They did not, but they could have. They could have believed the good news. Look at verse 17. So, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. People are called to believe something, and that something is about someone, and it concerns the word of Christ. Everything you know about Christ is found in the Bible. One leading Christian this week said, Well, our faith is not in a book, it's in a person. And that's a very slippery statement. That's the kind of statements that liberals make, where they say, you're not under the Bible, you're under the Lordship of Christ. Listen, everything you believe about Christ is from the Bible. We don't know anything about Jesus that's accurate apart from the Bible. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And that word is to be proclaimed through God's people. And it's certainly not a blind faith. It's not an ignorant faith. And if you're here today and you have questions over the authority of Holy Scripture, if you're a visitor and have questions, I'll give you a free book before you leave, How to Prove the Bible is True. Now, if you're a Christian and a member, you have to pay for it. I don't make any money on it, but How to Prove the Bible is True. You can know the Bible is the Word of God. God has given some internal proofs to show it's the only book He has ever inspired. And by the way, this principle that faith is born through the hearing of the word, that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ is a theme that runs all the way through scripture. Hold your finger here, would you? And turn to the right to 1 Peter. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1 and turn to verse 22 of chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, maybe just find Revelation and scan back a little bit and you'll find 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter is written to those who have been chosen by God according to his foreknowledge. The Bible teaches that the people of God are chosen and that that choosing, as we studied in Romans 8, is according to God's foreknowledge, his prognoskel. God knows everything. He knows how you would respond to the wooing work of the Spirit when you are dead in sin. And because God knows everything, if he didn't know everything, he wouldn't be God. Three times in the Revelation, it can say that God wrote your name in his book before the foundations of the earth. That doesn't change your free will. God already knows who's going to be saved and who's not. It does not change one thing in terms of your free will. God is just an omniscient God. And so he speaks to those, he's speaking to believers who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And here in this first chapter, he explains how this second birth makes us born-again Christians. Look at verse 22. 
1 Peter 1, 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now, I want you to see there's a connection between God's love for us and what is to be our sincere and fervent love for other Christians. And it's connected by this little word, for. In other words, fervently love one another, verse 23, for or because you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and abiding word of God. And so the connection between verses 22 and 23 is this little three-letter word, for. Peter is reminding me that we are to fervently love one another. Why? Because we have the same father. We're born of the same seed. And if we're born of the same seed, then that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. To those who've received Christ, he's given them the right to be called children of God. And so, on the one hand, the Bible says you are born again by the Spirit in John 3. On the other hand, in texts like this, it says you're born again by the Word of God. Which is it? It's both. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. No one in any age at any time has ever had faith apart from the Word of God. And he says that we're born of incorruptible seed, as the King James says, or imperishable seed, as the NAS puts it. Now, my first birthday came as a result of corruptible seed. My father, Richard John Brogy, is dead. His father is dead. His father's father is dead. And I come from a long line of corruptible seed. But we who have been saved are born of incorruptible, imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. Now go back to our text, if you will, here in Romans chapter t- uh, 10. And by the way, James states the exact same truth. I didn't read it, didn't have you turn there, but let me read it to you. It says, by his own choice, by the Father's choice, he gave us a new birth. How? By the word of truth. So the instrument, don't miss this. This is important to how you're ever going to share your faith. The instrument that the Spirit of God uses to bring about genuine conversion is the Word of God. So you ought to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, out of its sheath this week and use it. The degree to which you believe what Romans 10, 17 is saying, what 1 Peter 1, 23, what James 1, 18 is teaching, the degree to which you believe that is the degree to which you're going to use Scripture in evangelism. Some of us don't have five verses memorized concerning the plan of salvation. People all the time say, I can't memorize scripture anymore. Pastor, my mind's just too stale. You can memorize it if it's important to you. If I paid you $1,000 for every verse of scripture, you'd become a memory machine. You would learn the scripture. It's a matter of whether it's important to you. And some of us have never seen people come to Christ because we're not using the word of Christ to evangelize. And yet that is the very tool, the eternal seed that the spirit of God uses to bring about conversion. Now, back here in our text, someone might reason, well, since they did not believe, maybe they just never really heard. Maybe it was not a problem of heeding, but a problem of hearing. And Paul wants to underscore that's a total impossibility, and he appeals to Scripture as his authority. Look at verse 18. But I say, surely they have never heard. Have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. Now, it's an Old Testament quotation. Where does it come from? I heard someone say it, the Psalms. It's from Psalm 19. 
Now, if you know Psalm 19, we use it all the time as Christians to describe what we call general revelation in deference to specific revelation. Specific information that God has given concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is different from general revelation that God has given. General revelation is that information about God that all men have, irrespective of where they live on the earth, irrespective of whether they've heard the name of Jesus, whether they've ever held a Bible in their hands. And that general revelation comes on three realms in Scripture, by God's care for His creation, by man's conscience within, and by the creation. And so we saw in Romans 1 that the creation is shouting God's invisible attributes. That's why God's Word teaches there's no such thing as an atheist. And He devotes one half of one verse to atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Why? Because the creation is shouting God's existence. Let me refresh your memory with Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Though the witness of creation is silent, the rocks and the trees and the ocean does not literally speak, creation still shouts. Their line, their voice, their message has gone out through all the earth in their utterances to the end of the world. That is the same verse that Paul is quoting from the Psalms. Now, when you read it in the Psalm, and you read it here, it reads just a little bit differently because if you remember, he's not quoting the Hebrew Bible. He's quoting the Greek Old Testament. So you could say their voice, as the Psalm says, or their line or their message has gone out through all the earth. The message of creation shouts God's existence. Now, wait a minute. Why does Paul use that verse, speaking of creation, a witness that every person has, and he applies it to every Jew for a simple reason? He's applying the general revelation that every person has in the creation to the revelation that every Jew had in the first century. You could not go anywhere in the first century and find a Jew who had not heard about Jesus. The gospel was taken to every corner, nook, and cranny of the Jewish people. And so he takes that and he applies it to the Jewish people just as the Gentile has no excuse over God's existence. Even so, the Jew has no excuse over the fact that they have not heard about Jesus. And so they were, are indeed without excuse. So, number one, hearing is not believing is first seen in the fact that Israel did not heed the good news. And by the fact that Israel could have believed the good news. But to put the final nail in the coffin, pay attention. This is meaty. you got to hang in with me, but let God use this in our lives today. Israel should have believed the good news. They should have believed the good news. This great apostle demonstrates not only could they have believed, They should have believed. Notice what he writes here in verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. Paul is anticipating, as we've seen him do this all the way through Romans, he anticipates the objection that people would raise. And so he asks questions and then he answers them. And so he's anticipating the next objection. Well, maybe they heard, maybe the problem was they just didn't understand. And so he says here in verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, 
did they? And he uses a very refined word for know here in the original. It means to intelligently comprehend a truth. It is so important for Christians to be actively sharing their faith and to encourage one another to do so. To listen again to today's message, download the Search the Scriptures app. There you can listen to the entire Roman series. Just look up Search the Scriptures with Dr. Brogy in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we'll conclude our look at Hearing is Not Believing. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.